0: Good morning, everybody. How about those razorback? Oh, never mind. Forget about that part. You guys look fantastic today. Thank you for being here. Um, Listen, we are in a a series uh, that we just kind of started a few weeks ago, maybe last week. And um, we're talking about the topic of love and um, this topic, you know, when you, th- when you talk about love in church, you know, it seems like um, it would be kind of a boring topic. I mean, we're all, we're all past that, right? We all know what it's like to, uh, to have the love of God. But the reason we're choosing um, to talk about love and to kind of revisit it as a church for a couple of weeks is because it truly is uh, the reason why all of us are in this building this morning is because there was a time in our lives, a moment, when we felt the love of God so strongly that we made a decision to follow Him for the rest of our lives. And I think anytime you have a moment in your life that splits time for you, it's pretty significant. And so we're just going to uh, talk about this topic and um, and hopefully um, we'll walk out of here in a couple of weeks uh, knowing more about this, knowing more about God, and uh, knowing more about how He wants us to handle this big O topic. So, how many of you believe that the world has become just a little cranky? Anybody? you believe the world's become just a little cranky. Yeah. Politics and race and North Korea and female hurricanes um, just a ton, tons of stuff. Actually, studies show that hurricanes, uh, female hurricanes specifically, have 200 percent more wrath than male hurricanes, and they cry for no apparent reason. Okay, so the studies show that. Um, Seriously, there's so much offense right now in our country, and people are just offended. And so it was actually a relief to kind of see some of of the media uh, revolving around Hurricane Harvey. Uh, The reason why is because the media was on the story because a hurricane gets ratings But behind the storm was a great story of just people helping people. And so what what you saw was these pictures and videos of black and white and Asian and Hispanic people all sharing the same boats and throwing each other ropes and handing each other meals and bottled water. And so it's almost like chaos when it sets in it automatically causes us to come into a default mode of caring about about our our brothers and and sisters. And so when you peel back the layers of all the things that we're offended by, and you get past it, you come down to this one big truth, and it's just the fact that we, we love each other. There's something in us that is built in, Where love responds, and I don't know why it takes a chaotic moment to get us to reprioritize, but it just does. And so it was just really nice to see that and to reflect on it, because this world, your world, my world, the world in which we're living right now, really needs the love of God, really needs to fill it, experience it, be taught it, um, be discipled in it, just really recenter on what it means to be loved by God. And I think sometimes this is difficult for us not only to experience it, but to share it with other people because we know our true selves. We know all the things that we struggle with. We know all the vices that we have. We know about the secret sins, the thoughts that we don't want to tell anybody about. And so it's very difficult for us to know all that is going on And then to be able to look at God, who we know is perfect and holy and righteous, and say, how can that uh, holy and perfect and righteous God still love me because I know what's truly going on? And so there's a dichotomy that we always have between us and God, and then it gets even more difficult for us to go, and God loves you too because we, in and of ourselves, are having trouble being loved by Him. So I want to start today with just a big principle and it's simply this, um, what is best for people is what is best. And so when, when we think about this statement, what is best for people is what is best, I think that's just a general idea that we have in, in our humanity. We just generally believe that what is best for people is what is best. Now, let me give you an, an example. Um, we, we may argue Over What we think is best, but again, we believe that what is best for them still is the best thing. So an example would be, as parents, we don't sit around and argue over whether or not we love our children. This is something that we are confident of. We know we love our kids. So it's not even something that we have to talk about with our spouse. We get it. We know it. Um, We're not always pleased. Sometimes we're disappointed in our parenting. But um, the truth is, we love our kids regardless. However, we will argue over what we think is best for them. And the reason is because of this statement that we believe that what is best for people is what is best. As Christians, we should not be arguing over whether or not God loves people or whether or not he loves this group of people over that group of people. okay. As a matter of fact, you cannot say God loves one group of people over another and be a Christian. You can't be a follower of Jesus and even be involved in a debate where you truly believe, even a little bit, that God would possibly love that person over that person. There's this great moment, this incredible moment, excuse me, in Genesis, where God has formed man from the dirt. And I always bring this up. Anytime I teach on Genesis, I always bring this up. There's this moment where God takes his hands, and, and we have to kind of get this in our minds theater, and, and he dips down into some clay, and he begins to form man in his own image, and he, and he forms him, and something amazing happens. He breathes into man the breath of life. And at this point, you have to understand that God could have chosen to just talk at you. There's nothing wrong with God speaking. But he spoke everything else into existence except you. Everything else, he said, let, let there be this and that and this and that. But when it came to you, he wanted to put his hands on you. That From the very start, he wanted to touch you. He wanted to put his hands on you. And so when he does that, when he comes to you and he puts his hand on you, And then he picks you up and he breathes into you what the Bible says is the breath of life. And something amazing happens in Genesis 2 and 8. It says, and man became a living soul. That something so big and so rich took place. Because at that point, you and I became eternal. At that point, we became valued over all of creation. That you had more value in you than, than, than the animals were valued. You were greater than the sunrise. You were greater than the depth of the ocean. Why? Because God's breath was in you. So the big point of this is humanity has value. Humanity has value. And it's not because we love ourselves It's because God loves us. That's why there's value. That's why when we peel back these layers, when we look at pictures of Harvey, and we'll see the same thing with Irma, you'll see people lose their their offended nature, and they will reach for each other and help each other and serve each other to the point of exhaustion. Because in us, we didn't learn it, it's just in us. It came innately with the breath of God that there is value in each other. And We get it at the core of us. We get it. We get past our mind. We get past the things we want or think we want or we're driven by personal agenda, by emotion. It gets down to where we just get it that people have value. This is such a big deal to God that he actually gives us two big guardrails in our lives. They're both found in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. They're sister verses. They're both very strong and, and relevant to live by. Jesus is teaching, and in verse 30, he says this, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Okay? To sum it up, he is basically saying with every fiber of your existence, you need to love God. You need to be in love with him and and get him and understand him and be diving into a deeper relationship with him. In every season of your life, don't stop learning more about God. Don't stop reaching out for God. But but always let everything in you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and the second thing is you got to love people. So we, we teach this every year, and this is kind of, of the language that we use, but every year I, I do a sermon on, on finding God's will, and I use 30 and 31 of Mark 12. Why? Because these are great guardrails for us. You've got to love God over here and love people over here. And in our humanity, we're always saying, well, what's, what's God's will for my life? I mean, does God want, want me to take this job or not? Does God want me to move my family or not? Um, what college do I need to go to? Do I need to marry them? Is it time for us to have kids yet? Should we buy this house? And there's all kinds of things in our minds that are constantly bouncing around that we want to hear from God. And so let me just simplify it. God is basically saying if you love God and you love people, everything in between those two guardrails, you're going to have favor on your life. Okay? And so he said this is how, how big it is. I want you to love God with everything, and I want you to love people with everything. And the reason I want to stress this is because the church is the steward of this message. We are the stewards of Mark 12, 30 and 31. We are still the loudest voice in our society, culture and people group that is still communicating that people need to be loved and that is what is best for them. They need to be loved. In John chapter 5, there's this great story. And although it's going to seem a little strange at first, it's really going to resound to where you and I are living right now in this present day. And let me just paraphrase it for you. John chapter 5, there's this, this pool of water. And at this pool, uh, the Bible says that it's near the Sheep Gate, and they've built this pool of water. And if you know anything about Scripture in that, that day and time, pools and, and watering holes, wells, wells, were just something that was to be respected, it was to be honored. A lot of them had names to them, and they, they were just very well kept. They were monitored closely. They were the lifeline of the culture. And so we've, we've got this, this pool, and the pool, the Bible says, had five porches on it. And we know for a couple of reasons why, but, but sick people would come to this particular pool and gather. We know that one reason is obvious, there was a lot of traffic here. It was near the Sheep Gate, which is one of the biggest gates in, in the city. And so there's a lot of traffic, and so it allowed sick people to do some begging. But the second reason is because, and I'm, I'm going to read this verse to you in just, just a minute. But in, in our text, in, in John chapter 5, verse 4, it says that at certain times an angel would come. This is where it gets really strange. But an angel would come down, and he would somehow stir the water. And the first person who sees this and rolls into the water or jumps in or does a cannonball, whatever you want to do, gets healed, just the first person. okay? And that's where we pick up. And so I want to read this whole thing to you. John chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read nine verses. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, and there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered porches. And here a great number of disabled people would lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. In verse 4, if you're reading from the NIV today, it's going to go from verse 3 to verse 5, and it lists verse 4 as a footnote. But I'm going to give it to you. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the water, and the first one in the pool, after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. Verse 5, and one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, almost four decades this guy had been sick. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, he said, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and he walked. First thing I want to dive into this morning is this. An environment of sickness will breed a culture of sickness. An environment of sickness will breed a culture of sickness. There's actually a mental health diagnosis called shared psychosis. And shared psychosis simply means this. It means that a psychiatric symptom of one person can be transferred upon another person. I'm not talking about genetically. For example, in theory... You can have a healthy child who is raised by a sick parent, and just from the exposure and the overexposure and the constant being around sickness, the child grows up and has partnered in that sickness with that parent. How can that possibly be? Well, because sickness breeds sickness. And this is why Jesus even asked him, do you want to be well? We've all thought, that's, that's the dumbest question. you get this thirty-eight got this 38-year-old, uh, this guy who'd been sick for 38 years. Why would he not want to get well? I mean, this is such a rhetorical question, but it's not. The reason this is important is because if you're living life with only sick people and your culture is sick, and you've been in it for 38 years, you may not want to get well. Sickness may be the comfort zone. These other sick people may be family. For you to get well disturbs the whole dynamic. Do you want to get well? That's what he's saying. I don't know how many of you have had parents who challenged you to pick your friends carefully or challenged you not to give your heart away to the first guy who wanted it. Okay. it's because they were wise enough and some of them were redneck enough to say if you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. They understood the concept of hang out with sick people and you yourself can get sick. A sick environment breeds a sick culture. I don't know if you have ever loved someone so much that you wanted to ask them, do you want to get well? We've all had front row seats to circumstances where we just wanted to, to shake people. I think that's a southern thing. We shake people. My mama used to say, I'm so mad at you, I want to shake you. Sometimes she did shake me. We just want to put our hands on somebody and say, snap out of it. We want to we shake them. And sometimes we want to shake people because they're stupid. And, and stupidity is difficult to fix. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to give you some stupid quotes. Every year I try to plug this in at some point and I build them every every year so that the list gets longer because I think it's important for us to know that we have to, we have to fight for intelligence or the stupid people are going to take over. Okay, so here it is, uh, Brooke Shields. I don't know how many of you remember Brooke Shields, but um, every 14-year-old in the 80s loved her. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm not speaking to myself or anything. Um, okay, she, she said this. Okay, here it is. Smoking kills. And if you're killed, you've lost a very important part of your life. Okay? Come on, y'all. I mean, that, that's, there, there's, that's, that's good. Okay, A basketball player at the University of Kentucky, that probably explains the quote. But um, he said, I've never had major knee surgery on any other part of my body. That's, that's good. The Philadelphia Phillies manager said, half of this game is 90% mental. Hey, I don't know. You're going to need a calculator for that one. Um, Al Gore, when he was vice president, he made this quote. He said, it isn't pollution that's harming the environment. It's the impurities in the air and water that are doing it. Okay? Uh, an Australian politician said, traditionally, most of Australia's imports come from overseas. That's good. Uh Jason Kidd, ten-time NBA All-Star, said, "We're going to turn this team around 360 degrees. We're going to do it. We're going to we're going to we're going to bring some change." Okay. <laughs> so good. Okay. Former mayor of Washington said, "Outside of the killings, we're one of the lowest crime rates in the country." Okay. If you just take the murder off. Okay. All right. Um, Billy Ray Cyrus. That may be all I have to say right there. Is just, uh, this is the father of of Miley. He said this: Ever since I was a kid, I was a real deep thinker and stuff. It's pretty good. And then there's the Miss America contestants. God bless them. Okay, I got I got two of them. Miss America was asked, or Miss America contestant was asked, if you could be beautiful and not smart, would you choose that, and why? And her answer was, well. I'd rather be beautiful, um, because beautiful is natural. But being smart, you can learn. You can learn um, a lot of things. A, l- a lot of things. You you can learn a lot of things. Okay. The second Miss America contestant was asked, uh, "Explain the following quote by Confucius." Learning without thought is labor lost. Okay, this is her answer. I don't, I don't make this up. Good evening, Panama. Confucius was one who invented confusion, and that's why he was Chinese. Thank you. Okay. Listen, if you're Asian here today, we apologize. We don't know. We don't know what's wrong. I want to ask her, do you want to be well? Okay, that's what I want to say to her. Do you even want to get well? okay? (laughs) On On a spiritual note, we've seen people in our lives who continually return to the cycle of addiction. We've seen it. We've seen people who jump from unhealthy relationship to unhealthy relationship to unhealthy relationship. We've seen people who Spend all they have, then use up all their credit, then borrow money, then struggle with depression because they don't have margin in their life. And we want to ask them, do you want to be well? I mean, do you, do you want out of that? And I think this was the heart that Jesus was really getting at here, was to say, listen, a sick environment just is going to breed a sick culture, and you've been in that for almost four decades. Do you want to be well? Right? The second thing I want to talk about is this. Love expels every excuse. Love expels every excuse. So in verse 7, we hear this guy talk for the first time, and Jesus is just... Just gone to the heart issue. This isn't about the pool. This isn't about an angel stirring. This isn't about, it's, it was this yes or no question. Do you want to be well? And this man, instead of saying yes or no, starts to give excuses. And so the first one is this. I have no one to help me. This is verse 7. I have no one to help me. There's no sadder statement that we'll ever hear in our lives than I have no one to help me. I, sh- I don't have anyone. This week as I was reading stories about Hurricane Harvey, there was a paraplegic man and he was just moments from drowning when a rescue crew found him. You may have read the same story and they showed some video of when they, when they got into his home and he was laying in a hospital bed and he's paralyzed from the neck down, and debris was all across his room, some some boards and some clothing and just some general trash, and it was all the way up to, to just about his chin when, when they found him. And I thought, I wonder what had been going through this guy's mind. Number one, no, no one, no one loves me to the point that they would come and check on me before they left town. I mean, I just got... I got nobody in my life, and this was his story. It's just that my team, my medical team, who normally takes care of me, I mean, they got families, and they have to get out, and so I was just here. And so he was literally going to stay there and just drown because he had no one. I have no one. This is actually why we stress for you to find your tribe and live life with them. Now, whether you do it in a life group that we have formed for you, or you just pick some friends and have dinner with them and stay together and hang together and pray with each other, either way, I don't care. Because what I want to challenge you with as a pastor is that you get to the point in your life where you never, ever are able to say, this statement, I got no one. I just don't have anyone. That would be the saddest statement of anybody to have to say in our church that you would come here and you're not you're not connected anywhere that you just don't you have no one to help you there was a time when mo- most of our core staff here have been together for a decade and there was this time that the church was growing and and we, we were doing everything. We, we, we were the ones who were just, we were responsible for the parking lot. We were responsible for how the building looked. And we were responsible for putting out chairs and putting up chairs. And we were responsible for prepping the message and prepping music and, and getting video and audio. Everything was on, was on a very small uh, group of people. And we finally had to come together into a room and say, we're dying here. I mean, we're dying doing something great. We gotta let people help us. We gotta, and in in ministry we call it giving ministry away. We have to let somebody else do something so that we have synergy because the two of us are better than just me trying to do it all. You have to have people in your life who can help you or you'll die even doing a good thing. His second excuse was this He said, While I am trying, someone gets ahead of me. While I'm trying, someone gets ahead of me. And I want you to hear this because it's strong. But the threat of someone getting ahead of you is the epitome of the American culture. And you got to hear this with your heart this morning. There is always going to be someone more beautiful than you, smarter than you, who has more assets than you, Someone who's stronger, quicker, and more savvy. Someone who, while you are trying, gets ahead of you. Why is this? Because life is not a game where the one with the most toys wins. This is something in our culture, and if we're not careful, it robs us of a lot of joy. Because we look around, and everybody becomes a competitor. Everybody becomes someone who's trying to get ahead of us. Even sometimes we will reach out and help someone just to the point where we we help them just enough, but it's not so much that they do it better than we do it. Because if you do it better than I do it, then I've got to sabotage you. Because I don't want you to get ahead of me. This is how we have lived life. But life is the precursor to the greatest of eternity. Listen, your best life is not right now. It's not. Your best life will be in heaven. And the only focus we need to have right now if we are truly serious about following Jesus is loving God and loving people. That's it. Stay in those guardrails. Love the Lord and love people. Third today, love Rescues the ruined. My interpretation of this is there in verse 8, Jesus says to him after he's given his excuses, He says, Get up, get up, and take up your mat. Get up. What I think is that Jesus was tired of the environment. He was tired of the culture, he was tired of looking around and it was just weighty on him to, to look around and see all of this sickness and people who had camped out there for years and years and years so Jesus just speaks to him and says, "Get up." I'm going to be very authentic with you this morning. it was a time in my life I made a ministry mistake and I was I was a young guy and I'd been on church here and here on staff in a a church here in this community for uh, for several years, and this church in Tennessee called me and uh, wanted me to come on staff there. And um, I I was at a place in ministry where I, number one I wanted to to do more. I wanted to just expand a little bit. And no, number two, there was there was a financial reason because I wanted to to be. Full time for the first time in my, in my life at a church. So I went down to to the church and I talked to the pastor and just interviewed with him and it was really good. And he said, "Why why don't you come and speak?" And so I, I did, and it, it was I felt a connection with the people, and so I accepted this position, and I left Circe and, and went to this city in Tennessee. And when I got there, um. It, it did not take long. that it, just, it, just, it did not feel right anymore. And I had discovered in a very short period of time there was this undercurrent in the church that was very unhealthy and leadership was unhealthy. And there, were, there was a lot of, of, of backbiting going on. It was just something that I felt like suddenly I don't want to jump into this. And so I started to call pastor friends of mine and get, get counsel, and they were like, hey, man, listen, you got two options. You can either leave right now before things ever get started, or you can stay a couple of years and try to help the people and, and, and just try to make it a healthier environment. But if you don't think that you can stay two years, you need to leave right, right now. And so that's what I did. So I went to the pastor, and I said, I need to talk to you. And he actually said this. He said, the last time somebody said that to me, they told me they were leaving. And I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm gonna go before it, I even get started." And he and I left. It was great terms. It was very kosher. And he he agreed with the counsel I had. And he said, "If that's the way you feel, you need to go ahead and go." And before we ever get into this, and so I did. And I came back to this town with my tail between my legs, and I was beyond embarrassed. I was humiliated, and I was angry, and bitter, and resentful, and I had no. I didn't feel like I could go to church anywhere, and I didn't feel like I could be in the ministry. I just felt like I had messed up, like I would had a moral failure, but I didn't. It was just really heavy and and weighty, and I moved back in with my folks, and, and I got a job at Walmart, and I worked nights. And so I would go. I was in this bedroom at my parents' house that I grew up in. And here I am, an adult. And I worked all night long, and then I'd go to bed, and I'd sleep. And when I wasn't sleeping, I would just lay on my back, and I would just be depressed. And I'd look at my watch, and I'd wait about 30 minutes before I had to go to work, and I'd throw a ball cap on. I'd go to work, and I'd come back. I'd get in bed. I'd lay there all day. And my dad, one day, and my parents were very classy people, and my dad, my mom and dad have always knocked on our doors. They didn't have to. It was their house. But they knocked on my door. They would always knock. Hey, can I come in? They would wait for permission. But this one time, I'd just been laying in there and working at night and sleeping all day and working there. And my dad comes in. He's kind of like in a hurry. And my dad's not a pastor. He's not a counselor. He's just, he's just a dad who loves a son. And so he kind of comes in. He goes, get up. I said, well, what, do, you need, do you need my help with something? He's like, no, get get up. I want, I want you to get up. And I said, "What do you, what do you want me to do? He said, "I want you to get up and I, I want you to take a shower and I want you to eat some real food and I want you to change your clothes and turn the light on and pull those curtains away and make the bed and stinks in here. So like a working man, get clean yourself up, get up." I was like, oh, "Okay, all right." It's not like he had any options. He was like, "Get up, and Listen, I remember it was a pivotal moment for me. I don't know why. I know that's silly and simple, but it was. And some of you may be in this room today, and you have no one who loves you enough to tell you to get up. Well, I do, and so I'm going to tell you, get up. Because you you may be in this place in your life where, yeah, you're here this morning, and you look great. and If I were to talk to you one-on-one today, I wouldn't even smell that anything was wrong Spiritually. But it is. you'd be asked to get up. You'd have that same challenge that this guy did. Do you want to be well? Then get up. Get up. Let's get out of the way you're thinking and the way you're feeling, and you're stuck in a, in a situation that's been over for two decades. Get up. Just I just felt like the challenge is in the room this morning. Just get up. We need to know right now that you are more valuable than sitting in a sick environment just contributing to everyone's sickness. That you were loved, hear me, from the beginning. Jesus is not a last resort for you. He's always been the plan for you. Let me reference verse 4 and then I'll end this. And an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters and the first person in would be healed. You know, there's one here this morning greater than the angels. And it's not just the first person that comes to him gets touched this morning. It's all who come to him. He says in his word, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm going to give you some rest. He never gave criteria. He never, never gave boundaries or parameters. He just said, just come on. All of you who are weary, just come, and I'm going to give you rest. So you need this call this morning. Right. I want you to bow your heads with me real quick. I want to talk to your heart for just 30 seconds.